Chapter 3 Outlaw Country Well, hello, loves. I hope you're well, or convinced you're sick but not in hell. It does so seem, my dreadful things, that this place here, its heart does sing to me. In my ear it says, Right here, this is the place where you died near. Does that make sense? Maybe. Recompense? Yes, I indeed forgave before this grave. This gothic place, this mystic space, these columns before which I fell from grace. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Jamie's voice, echoing, echoing, as usual outside the meditation room. It had just been over a couple of Earth days since Jamie had learned to fly. I sent her out to practice. Explore, learn about defying more than just death itself. And it could have gone better. Could have gone better, I'm happy to admit that. Not out loud, of course. Especially to Jamie. Um, I can hear you. Moron. God damn it, Jamie. Get out of my head! Are you going to let me in? Or out, or wherever the hell you are. I'm embracing the cabaret. You're whatting the what? Go away! You're not the only one who's listening. Thank you. Sorry about that, listeners. Most of my other guests, unwanted or not, all seem to adhere to my no-invading-while-meditating rule. But not Jamie. Or so it seems. It's an unwritten rule, so many of them are, but abided by nonetheless. Other rules include not to feed the immortal aardvarks as they will live beyond the life of the universe, and therefore in the next one, it's possible we'll all be descended from aardvarks. It would be an interesting experiment, but I wouldn't want to be the one responsible for it. You must, however, feed the mortal aardvarks, because, you know... They're mortal. And if you don't, the killbots that stay live to detect enemies will shut down, and most of the guests will be, let's say, vulnerable. Let's see, what else is there? Oh yes, this house for the lost, fallen and forgotten operates an automated drug dispensary service to accommodate all your health requirements and to assist, create and kick your particular vices. However, you must never be alone when attempting to embark on a mystically induced journey. Make sure you bring a piece of your zone of safety along with you. It is your way back. Your way home. Smoking is permitted in the designated smoking areas, although it is not up to me where those designated smoking areas are. Ashtrays, however, are provided at each end and in the middle of most corridors. However, as the corridors tend to grow and shrink in size and move around indiscriminately and discreetly, it is requested that you carry your own to avoid any ash-based portals to the unknown. Smoke is magic, after all. 
Teleportation pads are provided for those who leave their rooms and find that they cannot either get back in or find it in any way. Even though... Dudes. Guests. What are you even doing outside of your rooms? You have, like, everything you need in there. Most of you are on the run from gods and demons, most of which could kick my ass. so get back in there. There is matter replication and hollow technology for crying out loud. Miss Holm, we can bring it to you. Stop being such a downer. Enjoy your freedom from the eternity of suffering, and stop making holes in the walls. They'll just close up again. They will. No. <laughs> they will. Ah, well, it's about time. I could do with a breather. Let's see here. Indeed, I do wonder where House has decided to grow now. For what lies ahead can never happen yet. What is that thing? Jamie's voice from behind me. The hairs on the back of my neck reacted, as if the not-quite smell of death on her breath was intrusive and unwelcome, and so I jumped out of my skin, which itself remained suspended where I had been hovering. My somewhat adhesive endoskeleton organs were now on the ceiling, my long, bony feet now clamped spider-like to the thick, acrid atmosphere. My dark, pale bones glinted in the starlight. I folded my arms, glaring at Jamie with wide, lidless eyes. Wet plasma ran and dripped from my inner form as I stared, and she stared back, half-smiling, stepping back and allowing me to regain myself. Don't you ever knock, I growled. I did knock, but you were busy being cryptic. Full-time occupation, dear. Didn't you say something about taking a break? Jamie asked, now deigning to notice her surroundings. I could sense her focusing particularly on the wooden desk that sat adjacent to where I would normally choose to hover on the castle roof. Atop the oak table sat a typewriter. It gleefully tapped away of its own accord as the surrounding eruptions cascaded across the skyline, temporarily drawing Jamie's attention. But not for long. Meditation rooms can, of course, vary depending on the desired effect or outcome. For example, if you want to achieve a peaceful state of mind, you might wish to hear the sound of waves crashing against the rocks, while birdsong trills from the hills of green above. Counterbalancing that, if you're in an angry, brooding mood, as I often am, and if your face is more than happy to be contorted in a seemingly endless smiling glare into the painful abyss, then why not recreate the volcanic ambiance of the Mustafar system? You're there now. Can you see yourself? Standing atop the great castle of the one who breathes last, surveying the natural apocalypse covering the giggling planet's surface from above, as natural as Scottish rain or Caribbean sun. It varies from being to being, of course. The meditation room reflects your intentions and internal contentions. What might they be, I wonder? It's really hot in here. Out here. 
here. It's the only way to perform this kind of yoga. And yes, I did mention a breather of sorts. I don't know what you're doing here on top of this cliff, if you can call it that, but it certainly didn't look like yoga. Well, you don't look or sound like a dead bat, and yet you are. At that moment, Jamie decided to perform what I like to call a mystical remonstration. She was too far away physically to clip me in the face, and so she built up enough momentum with her thumb and the edge of her middle finger as if about to flick the ashen air. Flick it. Nothing. But it wasn't quite nothing. When witches flick, the pressure they create, if they so desire, can be extended over short distances. An intermediate form of telekinesis, if you like. I could sense she was aiming for my ever-contorted left cheek. The intended direction of the pressure, however, was slightly altered due to the surrounding volcanic winds, and so, rather than feeling what would have only been a minor annoyance to the left side of my face, instead became an intense bout of pain as she hit me right in the corner of my left eye. Not funny, she said sternly. Instinctively, I swung my left arm around to suspend her movement with my thoughts, my open palm pulsating with green energy. But it was an only partial success as I began to feel my motor skills being overwritten by Jamie's desire for self-defense. One had only partial control over the others and their own movements, and we were both now floating towards the castle's naturally formed cliff edge. As if in a zero-gravity trap of our own making, she turned me 90 degrees to face her as I lifted her from terra firma. Temper, temper, I said, now staring her down with one open eye. The closed one was busy making itself useful, as it was briefly blinded and therefore of no external use, it was busy scanning my network for any anomalies worth investigating, listening intently to the sirens of silence. There was, of course, my third eye, but considering the nature of this nightmare meditation chamber, and the fact that even I suffer from occasional sensory overload, it was covered by a dream-catching bandana house selected for me upon waking. Across from me, all three of Jamie's eyes pulsated in concentration, the third eye only visible in the starlight. This wasn't the first time she had tried to read my hidden thoughts. A futile act she would sometimes attempt whenever I became more than just annoying. Perhaps she thought that having me partially suspended would make it easier to break into the forever restricted sections of my mind. And she wasn't completely wrong about that. Just mostly. You've been hiding out here. In here, I cut her off. Fine, you've been hiding in here for days. Your guests are getting, should I call it, restless? We continued floating slowly towards the ragged edge. Did they send you with a list of complaints? No, I sent me. We have to locate the others. The others. I'm working on it. Well, I was, and now I'm going to fall to my death. Then put me down. Get out of my head. You're like a giant, ever-expanding Q-tip. I'm getting fucking tinnitus here. Fine. We ceased our edgy pilgrimage, as long as you climb out of your ivory tower. How dare you? House has many elephant sanctuaries. I will climb out of my volcanic castle whenever I choose, if you don't mind. I do mind. The ceasing ceased. It, um, just so happens, however, that I am choosing exactly now to do exactly that. Are you going to tell me what the typewriter is doing? Typing. Beyond that. 
It's an invitation of sorts. A call for help. From who? Dear Mr. Grin, what you feared has come to pass. They came down from the mountains and tracked us to the Midwest. My husband and I are hiding in plain sight, just like you taught us. But time is running out. You told us last time we met that we would meet again before the end. And that our time was and is in your hands. As the wolves are now at the door, we await your arrival. May we stand unshaken amidst a crash of worlds. There was a sudden chill in the air as Megan Hennessy, later mentor and grandmother to Kaya Hennessy, signed the type note by hand, sealing it along with her fate. She had to get out of this place. It had been raining for seventeen days before the near-distant growling from the tangled woods outside her door had started, and it was raining still. Harder now. Her husband, Arthur Hennessy, had been standing in the same saloon in the livestock town half a mile away for half that time, most likely drinking away the money he earned, further muddying the names of other men to clear his own. Funny how the law lets you do that. A bounty hunter he was, and one that liked to do his job right, but also liked to drink to block out the things he'd heard and seen. Maniacal confessions of desire from those he called red-handed, working their depraved magic on those they deemed worthy. Or that's how they would see it. The pleads of mercy from those wrongly accused of a crime they would be hanged for anyway. They paid Arthur more if he kept them alive. If that wasn't possible, which did happen, be it an attempted escape or a hastily planned, spiteful suicide, the criminals knew the bounty hunters would get paid less if they were returned to the sheriff as a corpse, or so dead there was nothing left to return. Less drinking money for me, Arthur would say. And the marshal, the one who ran the sheriff's office and was responsible for printing and hanging the posters Arthur would later tear down in every possible way. He would laugh and say, Less to forget, I suppose. Less to forget, Megan repeated. Lucky him. She went to the window and looked to the tanned hills of the country's wasteland. To the east, just out of sight, a ranch she made a quiet living on. The ranch's owner, a strange fellow in his mid-fifties who spent most of his time talking somehow without saying anything whatsoever. A man of simple mind who, thankfully, Arthur saw as harmless, and that he was, Seth was his name, a father and loving husband to the family Megan herself mostly dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis, doing daily chores and dealing with the children who were as mad as a box of cats. They took up most of Megan's day and gave the wife a chance to help Seth around the ranch, which itself supplied a lot of the livestock for the town not far down the way by the name of Mercer. 
That town housed the nearest sheriff's office for miles, and was mostly run by drunken bounty hunters and shady lawmen. Arthur had fit right in with the locals. A dangerous place for dangerous beings. More than three months they had been hiding out here, a couple of years drifting through various towns further north before that, and Arthur had sent more than 27 men to the gallows. A charge he had been cursed with, collecting souls to be harvested. That was why most of the people he brought in never kicked up much of a fuss. Even if they had been known for it, Arthur had the will to suck their very resolve from them. Scare them dead inside. Not a ceremony he enjoyed performing. Out in the wasteland, dressed in the blood-darkened clothes of a cowboy, uttering words in a language that was not of this world and yet affecting, and in some ways extracting those who inhabited it nonetheless, for some far-off, darkened purpose that concerned him not. They were out to live, Megan and Arthur. Out to live, because back home there was so much to be lost by remaining. The rules of their homeland were strict, stringent and strange, for what he was and what she was. A wedding had been their first form of celebration and commemoration after arriving in the Midwest. Of course, months and months before, Megan started her job at the ranch over the way. The wedding wouldn't be legally binding back home, of course, but that didn't matter. They were promised to each other now. They even asked me to perform the ceremony to make sure it was done right. And you know something, listeners? I was happy to. As consolation. How many would be enough? How many souls was this kind of freedom worth? The wolves were at the door, or they might as well have been. A group of various ancient tribes of lupine wavelength hemoveriforms responsible for guarding the borders of the northern and southern Aquitanian citadels, from where the city walls gave way to the wild frontier between the civilized lands of the humanoids, completely essential for the planet's survival, as far as the Dimensional Collective was concerned, staving off attacks from the Aquitanian frontier's dark, brooding moods and seasons. The werewolves of the wildlands, as they were known, forbidden to walk through the streets of the city, only to stand on the outside protecting it, they were thought of as savage by the Aquitanian humanoids, regardless of their ability to edit their appearance to blend into their surroundings, whether that be in a forest outside when attempting to capture prey, or in a city full of people simply trying to gain acceptance. It was the way of things. Megan's family, although aware of what lay beyond the walls of the citadel, had been content living close to them. Megan's mother, and she was sure her mother's mother, had and continued a secret tradition that dates back centuries in Aquitanian history, listening to the werewolves of the wildlands, communicating with the wolves outside the walls, as they had come to call them over time, a tradition that Megan Hennessy in particular had been somewhat obsessed with for the majority of her life. That obsession had caused her to venture outside the walls of the citadel, out into the frontier, where she would meet and fall for a distinguished member of the city guard and, not least, where mine and Megan's paths first crossed. I had been the one to lead them here, to live out their Aquitanian lifespans on simpler planes, among people who weren't any more accepting, given that I had time-displaced them for safety and again simplicity, but the humans of Earth were mountains more oblivious. Humanity's Western Industrial Revolution wasn't exactly the Aquitanian frontier, but it was the perfect place for a humanoid and a shapeshifter to blend in to live out their lifespans in a lawless land, to find themselves as the country surrounding them did the same. That and I slightly eyeballed the space-time coordinates. I was only a couple of centuries off, given that Megan was born in the Aquitanian equivalent to the 22nd century, 
and Arthur the turn of the 21st. Raised in part by his tribe out in the frontier before becoming a member of the Citadel Guard, the equivalent to 20 years required for training, Megan had fled her homestead in her early 20s, having spent all her life within the Citadel walls, and was now approaching the landmark of her third decade, centuries before her time. My fault. But hey, the things we do for love. All the things we do. It does so seem, however, that further complications have arisen, both closer to home and further from it. They would soon have no choice but to move on somewhere else, which they could have done all by themselves if it hadn't been for the reputation Arthur had recently cooked up for himself here, and, due to his target's origins, the neighbouring states beyond, that and his loosened grip on his true self. It was time to bring him back to him. Rumours had begun circulating, as rumours do, and they were spreading like firewood over a tobacco field soaked in stolen moonshine, that to meet Arthur Hennessy's gun was a fate worse than death itself, that he had the ability to become invisible if he chose, apparently immune to poison as fast as a cheetah. His horse was merely used for stowing and blending in. Half-truths at the most, you don't mess with a lupine, Megan heard herself say, still gazing out of the window. The sun was beginning to set. She stole a quick glance behind her to find that the words on the letter had dissolved into the paper, which calmed her slightly. It had been delivered. As always, it was only a matter of time. There was a howl in the distance as the sun sank down behind the western hills. Megan's thoughts lingered on her lone lover, out there in the wasteland of complacency. He had given up everything for her. Everything. And was still fighting for her, even now. In his own way. And it seemed that they had been blessed with a new problem. Megan put her hand on her stomach. What we do, we do for you, she said. Three. It was the 10th of August, 1889, and for the third time that afternoon, Arthur Hennessy shifted himself on the uncomfortable bar stool as he searched for his book of matches. He had attempted to search for them several times now, but had kept getting distracted by the mirrored glass opposite him on the bar's display section. His face peeked between two bottles of whiskey, and would periodically disappear as the bartender walked back and forth. Between these faceless moments, all that was visible was the scar on his right cheek, a deep, aging wound, received in the early years of his training as a lupine, before, of course, he had learned and had begun to master the art of shape-shifting. That scar was permanent. Whatever shape he took, the mark would always be there, and so he could never really feel truly hidden. Beings around him would comment, but he wouldn't pay them no man. If only they knew his true form. Everyone in the saloon would run a mile or more if they knew. Was he doing it for himself, or for them? For Megan, he thought, then poured another drink. You're doing it for her, so that you can live. Live. More like some dog on a leash tethered to his past, unable to escape it. He had rented a room in the lodgings above the bar so as to be closer to the sheriff's office. That and the alcohol. 
Arthur didn't like to drink in front of Megan. As a telepath, he could tell it sparked within her the guilt she felt for her part in his dishonorable discharge, for lack of a better term. As the hours passed, he found himself drifting. Around him, other drinkers milled about in various states of mood and inebriation, some laughing, some crying with a sliding scale from joyful to hostile, all attempting to unwind, and most likely at least temporarily, forget. Alcohol tended to put lupines into a trance-like state, turn them introspective but blocked out the surrounding noise of passing thoughts, both internal and external. It helped him focus while also allowing him to be slightly disconnected from the physical plane, the outer world, becoming a mere spectator but on an interactive level thanks to his years of training. Muscle memory, that's all it was. You ain't living. You just killing, drinking. Then killing some more. You'll bring only death. Behind him, a drunken humanoid in a careworn, squinted straw hat, a disheveled, aged French dress shirt, ripped jeans and only one mud-brown boot bumped into Arthur while drunkenly staggering past his stool. Excuse me, mister. Despite his haze, Arthur growled instinctively, resting his hand on his gun grip by his side. The man's eyes widened and he raised his hands in friendly surrender, unsteady on his feet thanks to his altered center of gravity, before falling over, having the foresight to place down his half-finished bottle of beer on the nearest counter beforehand. The man remained still, likely unconscious. Arthur was still working on covering up his proximity growl, although he found it was a useful deterrent. He finished his drink. Unable to find his book of matches, Arthur lit up a premium cigarette with a simple click, checking of course that the bartender's back was turned. His autopilot setting took him first to the general store, down the street to load up on provisions, and then to the sheriff's office further down to inquire about his next target. In his left hand, he held the half-finished bottle of beer, not wanting it to go to waste. Earlier, he had overheard some bandits, likely local boys of a collectively misremembered youth, talking in hushed tones about a rival hideout robbery gone wrong. Some new kids had apparently taken control of some abandoned plantation house to the north, previously inaccessible until it was repossessed by the Bank of Mercer after the original owner's recent demise. No doubt it was an inside job, Arthur thought, musing as he walked. A lot of bank tellers were looking to make more of a profit these days, and personally took advantage of legal repossessions of government property since the abolishment of the trade. It was well known that cargo stockpiled by some paranoid plantation owners didn't stop at humans. Guns, gold, provisions, building materials, tools of torture. Perfect for a new gang wishing to make their mark in this lawless land. What good is gold to you? He thought to himself, dropping the bottle. It's not about you, he said aloud, peering up at the half-open entrance, his thoughts falling back once again on Megan. All he needed, all he ever needed to focus his mind, was her. Not far now. Ahead of him, he spied a hogtie prisoner being dismounted from a battle-hardened thoroughbred. The man carrying the bounty was a known drunken abuser to various spouses who had mysteriously disappeared on him down the years he'd called himself a Mercer resident. A gifted tracker he was and a more gifted killer. Arthur had seen him in action. But Bill Carter only tended to deliver bounties when he needed to lower his own, and only brought them back alive if Bill's own bounty was steeper than expected. That wasn't even the rules of this specific town, that's just how it was everywhere. Bad people ruining the lives of other bad people so that they can continue to do bad things. Ain't no justice, Arthur muttered, 
Never is. There were five windows cut into the sheriff's office building, two on either side of the front entrance that faced out onto the main road of the town, one at the back by the rear exit that gave way to the lifeless back lot, and one window on either side, barred of course, so that those in the holding cells could have their day in the sun before the powers that be killed their fucking light. No hope of escape. In a way, Arthur felt some kinship with them. Their fate was sealed just as much as his was. He even played a vital part in what would become of them, but he soothed himself in the knowledge that these particular men, women, and variations thereupon were objectively bad, seen as evil by the standards of this strange society, still oblivious in its own infancy. A plume of smoke escaped the window on Arthur's left, the one that the sheriff tended to sit at, his desk was angled in such a way that nobody could aim from a distance and catch any part of him. The last sheriff, and there had been many, had been the one to prove that a few inches can make all the difference. Arthur waited until Bill Carter had exited the sheriff's office before heading inside. The man's aura shone a glow of calm. He headed in the direction of the saloon. Drink. Sleep. Kill. Repeat. Arthur wasn't sure if that was his own thoughts or Carter's. Booze sometimes made the differentiation difficult. The sheriff revised most of what Arthur already knew, advising an unusual amount of caution as this gang were newcomers to these parts, probably on the run. The level of their brutality was unknown, untested, not to mention their strength in numbers and likely large amounts of firepower. We were gonna go ahead up there with some officials from the Mercer Bank to transport everything securely. But these new boys got a wind of it before all the right pieces of goddamn paper were signed by the right goddamn people. We don't know what you'll be walking into, Fran. What you'll be walking into. The sheriff's choice of words was deliberate. He wouldn't be seen risking his position, his neck, God forbid, for the welfare of this town, not unless the higher-ups were providing significant manpower. Spoilers, they weren't. Nope. They'd rather send a bunch of desperate carpetbaggers first to assess the severity of the situation. Then and only then would they call in the cavalry if necessary. The ways of this goddamn place. Arthur muttered to himself when he was back outside, heading in the direction of his mount. He had a vague sense that there was someone watching him. Some unknown, which for lupines was rare. For Arthur's kind, haze or no haze, if someone was focusing specifically on you, their inherent abilities, their training, would hone in on that being specifically and try and learn everything there is to know. It wasn't just a defense mechanism, it was a natural passive part of lupine existence, unwanted eyes being on you when hiding in plain sight. This pair of eyes, however, seemed distant, but not in a physical sense. They were close, yet not. Arthur thought of this the difference between small and far enough away as to appear small. He dwelled on it briefly, writing it off as some sort of human level of paranoia he had picked up along the way, when in fact the truth was precisely the opposite. The plantation house's location was now stored safely on his metaphorical internal map, one he had been working on ever since he and Megan had been forced to change up dimensions. The ride wasn't far. Maybe, after this task was completed, he would return home. Maybe. Later, when riding north towards Valkyrie Springs, as it was known, the dust billowing around his shotgun coat and stalker hat in the pre-dawn dark, he would think of her. Her face, her eyes, her smile, the way she laughed when he growled lovingly. All the while, he was looking, listening, smelling, tracking, 
Finding these fools presented no trouble. They always left a trail like slime, having hunted a white hall deer for sufficient sustenance and erected some shelter from the rain. Arthur camped in the wilderness that night, staring at the stars, the gleaming half-moon partially visible behind the wisps of cloud. He removed his wide-brimmed hat, deciding to let his real ears feel the atmosphere around him. They began to sprout almost noiselessly out of his skull, wiggling in the whipping wind. Arthur allowed himself a smile of satisfaction as the western air coursed through his follicles. Then it faded when his true ears heard the screams, at least two miles north, at most three. Humanoid, male, late twenties. Pain threshold, low. Very low. Another noise. Laughter. Enjoyment. Schadenfreude. Megan had a love for reading, and often enjoyed attempting to absorb other languages spoken on the planet around her. There was no way of knowing where they would end up next. Arthur remembered Megan telling him that Germans had a way of conveying more specific emotions in a way those who spoke the English language did not, and Schadenfreude, a word used to describe the enjoyment or even delight in someone else's pain or misery, was something that Arthur was all too familiar with. Not in his own case, but that of his commanding officer, or former commanding officer, in the Citadel Guard, the General of Lupine Crown Command, the one who had made sure Arthur and Megan Hennessy would be forced to call themselves those very names for the rest of their lifespans, not a being to be trifled with. Arthur had just taken to referring to him in his own mind as simply the General. Speaking his name was enough to make his stomach churn and his insides twist. The scream sounded again, then the laugh. It was time to move. Replacing his hat, his coat beginning to dampen as it came into contact with the rain. Valkyrie Springs was the only residence for at least another few miles around, and the laughs and cries themselves had an echoey tinge to their vibration in Arthur's ears. It was likely the sounds were coming from there. No harm in a little scouting, I suppose. Four. May I stand unshaken amidst a Mr. Crash of Worlds? What does that mean? Jamie asked, taking in the words on the page, watching the signature appear on the note exactly as Megan Hennessy had written it. She looked back at me. I was levitating again, eyes open this time. And how did the typewriter do that? It's not a typewriter, dingbat. Don't call me that. It rhymed with your question. So beware your intention. Tis just a mere mention. How is it doing that? As she broke the cycle with a new question, I decided to relent. Telepathic parchment. Fancy. Quite low level. It's like a psychic link, only to an object instead of a living brain or network. I tend to leave tearings with certain people I encounter, in case they ever need to contact me. I doubt that happens very often. Do you now? Well, you're in quite a specific line of work. Is that right? I lit up with a click. Well, you guide, protect, create and destroy magical beings, from what I can gather. That's not an inaccurate description. I do, however, prefer the term... Celestial. Only partially, though, right? If you say so. So there's some magic... 
Jamie stopped herself, which made my smile widen. She was learning the lingo. Celestial being somewhere out there that needs your help. I suppose that's close enough for now. Shall we? Where, though? What about Grayson? She looked at me then, hard-faced. I knew on some level, even without looking beyond the veil, that my answer would greatly determine her opinion of me. Which friend did I hold in higher regard? Which one was more important? I'll leave the decision up to you, my dear. <laughs> Fuck. Fuck indeed. I exhaled. So, which one is it? Texas, 1889, with all its simultaneous bustling progression and regression, or Scotland, 1979, a world on the brink of a new millennium, with no clue of the beauties and horrors that lay ahead, before Earth changed forever. There was a pause while Jamie considered. I again chose not to read her thought process. Texas, she said, a smile crossing her pale face. Might I ask why? I said, again returning to terra firma, my interest piqued. Because it's not about who's in more immediate danger. If we're using this place as a conduit, how will manifest a threshold at the same moment and place in time and space, whatever order we go in. It does, however, matter who is more equipped to deal with their current situation. And I suppose... How we intend to save them. <laughs> and that, Jamie Mortimer, is why the souls out there don't just need my help. What do you mean? They need our help. I took a lengthy visit to one of House's many manifested dressing rooms and half a ride on an interstellar ghost train for Jamie to notice that I'd avoided her other question. What does that song mean? It means what it says. Thanks. You're welcome. Must be important. What makes you say that? I asked, looking up from one of the consoles. You usually love explaining, even if it's vague as hell. One thing hell is not, dear, is vague. You should know. And you seem to spend a lot of time punching in those space-time coordinates. How did you know that's what they were? The amount of concentration on your face? You'll be thankful for my brief level of focus. Trust me. Had to point the train in the right direction. This train of thought, if you will. That's what it's called. Among other things. It's a mirrored parallel pocket dimension. Capable of traversing the finite curve and other places beyond, thanks to houses... Let's call it a campaign to get me out and about. The more I sulk and wallow, the more she grows into places, into things that I would rather not name. I was off my meds for a while. You're on medication? That's your question? Can you blame me for not understanding most of the first part? Yes, I think you'll find I can. You've been here long enough to know the lingo. And exactly how long have I been here? I looked at her then, surveying her choice of outfit. It seemed that the snow of Summerland had pushed her towards opting for more outdoor-appropriate clothing. Before her first death, Jamie tended to reverse her fashion depending on the winter. Is the ever-darkening star above close enough to reveal skin? Then deny the satisfaction. By the same token, if it wants to fix you with its towering icy stare, blubbering down upon you with no tear the same, let it rain down hard. Her attire consisted of a striped leather corset and knee-high boots of matching pattern and material. 
all-purpose skinny jeans, and several trinkets from one of House's artifact corners. Black peppercorn prayer beads hung around her neck, forged in the basement level of the Vatican. Great choice for protection against invading spectres and puppetry demons. It wasn't surprising that Jamie had primarily opted for protection and practicality since her possession. Two sigil rings sat comfortably on both of Jamie's middle fingers. With those babies, all you had to do was face your palms away from you, a few inches in front of where you happened to be standing, and say the incantation, Enter the light, I command thee. And, just like magic, anything beyond the veil that means you harm or is attempting to communicate, you don't quite know which until it enters the light the rings emit like an energy pulse. Which can be dangerous. The unknown presence will reveal itself to you, just long enough for you to find out what it wants. The rings could also act as an emergency force field. As we approached, I realized I had been silent for quite a long time, and so I finally opened my mouth to answer her question. A while, I said. It's a complex equation. Never been much for equations. It's probably better that way. Besides, that's not important. We're nearly there. Nearly where? Time zone acquired and rendered. Please specify physical location. House breathed. Confirmed. This is the closest I can get you. I heard Jamie audibly gasp as we stared through the doors, literally taking in the history. No way. There's always a way. Shall we? Jamie stared ahead over the threshold, trying to work out where she was. Feeling nothing, she moved her eyes to the train's interior. It was brilliant white, composed mostly from fractions of preserved supernovas from various points in the Zeta Quadrant. Finito glass capable of withstanding extonic sunlight, which was powerful enough to incinerate any humanoid on contact. And to be honest, listeners, astral forms didn't do so well either. It was stretched and woven across, through and around House's web of thoughts to prevent the power source from damaging her physical neurons, since I tended to use them as train tracks. That too was a work in progress. I need to find a way to stabilize the power source. The nerve center was the only place I was sure was secure. My safe zone. My home. Our home, though, I heard Jamie say, internally. She wasn't looking at me. She was now focusing again on the location change, but I could hear her mind was elsewhere, along with so many others. And not all of them are allowed to leave. How many are there? She asked, now turning to look at me. It's complicated, I said aloud. Now come on, we've got some investigating to do. I'm not sure what possessed me to do what I did next. Maybe it's possible that Arthur was too far gone. Too many rituals, too many dirty souls, too many sacrifices. I was scared. Was I scared? I put out my hand. I didn't want to meet Jamie's eye. In all honesty, I just wanted her to take my hand. I was scared. If this didn't work... If this didn't work... Physical contact. The fear lessened in the way that you can feel opiates blocking pain. Impure, but it would do for now. We stepped over the threshold. Together. Ah, oh, Mercer, one of the worst places to come out of the closet. Very fucking funny, Jamie said, pushing past me and exiting the oak storage unit. The room outside was dark, the air humid. Dust billowed across the negative spaces where the moonlight hit the wardrobe's doorway. In the rooms below, the sound of activity, drinking, shouting, dancing and singing. I'm guessing we didn't pay for this room, huh? In our own way. Where's the light switch? Right here. I said, Renvar. 
can Frolax that wolf flower. Ah, there he is. He, it's a cane. Haven't you learned by now that pretty much all of my possessions are sentient? Or at least have qualities that make them more than just things? Okay, Christ, I'm sorry. What's his name? And is that Sobek on the top? Snappy. And yes, Snappy. I'll explain later. Just then, I used my staff to improve the illuminations of our surroundings. Like most magic users, I occasionally store certain spells and magical properties within objects, much like a computer or smartphone application shortcut. With this object, in this case my cane's body, as a kind of multifaceted home screen, one quick, multigestural, three-fingered pinch, halfway down. Let there be light. What in the name of hell? How did you get in here? Through the closet, I replied, staring down the room's legal occupant. He froze like a deer in sudden torchlight. Remain where you are, if you would be so kind. It's not like you're giving him a choice. It's always polite to ask. Whatever you say, Jamie said, quickly losing interest in our sudden audience member, her mind graduating naturally to the moonlight shining through the window. She made her way over. This is really 19th century Texas? Why ask me? Like you said, we didn't pay for this room. Jamie was gazing across to the other side of the dust-ridden street. Opposite the saloon stood a general store adjacent to a gunsmith. It seemed as if half the town was out tonight. Unfiltered cigarette smoke rose and evaporated into the atmosphere, and Jamie followed it to its source. Women of the night milled around men of neglected virtue. Some responded in kind, flashing their no less hard-earned wages. Some, who Jamie could see under hats leaking sweat, were of simpler mind and chose to flex to impress. An empty gesture, everyone knew that, especially to those on the clock. Further down the street, the buildings began to be separated by narrow, dimly lit alleyways. Above the first, she could only just make out was a suspicious kind of darkness, at ground level despite the moonlight. Plumes rose out of the ink, catching Janie's eye. It was a particular kind of smoke that smelled off to her, somewhat displaced. What's that I smell, friend? I asked. Jamie smiled, breathing in the simultaneous synchronicity. I'm sorry, murmured the audience. You do have a very scary face. Not you, nutsack. I stood up to join Jamie, temporarily cutting off 50% of the man's air supply for good measure. Something that sure don't grow around these parts, Jamie said, morphing her voice. Not yet, anyway. My smile widened. Seems we're not the only ones passing through this century. Maybe they're local, like your friends. I wouldn't call them my shut up, mark them. Jamie swung round, turning her attention to the gasping audience. Even in the neverlight, she could see he was turning blue. I did as she instructed as she broke my spell. The man's face became the opposite color as he fell to the ground, retching. You know, smoking can kill, Jamie said, sauntering forward. Choosing again to suspend the poor man, but unlike me, she let him breathe. Especially these days, where it's encouraged for health reasons. Morons. I mean, at least branch out, right? Nah. Forgive me, mister. It's, um... The man began. No need. Now, I cannot help but notice that you have a bruise on the back of your head. The man frowned, his eyes wide. A bruise? Let me check. God! Damn it! The man exclaimed. How did... The girl's observant. I cut him off. This guy just couldn't get a word in. 
A recent injury, yes. Like he'd remember. He was probably dumped in here after he passed out. Hey, I'll resent that. No, you don't, Jamie and I said in unison. Fine. So I had one too many. Maybe more than one. I'm a regular, that ain't no crime. As a regular, you must have at least one eye for faces. People who pass through here. Uh, um, yes, ma'am. Wait a minute, I said, raising Snappy to get a better look. I already knew when the light revealed he was only wearing one shoe. Lost a boot, have we? You seen it? The man looked genuinely hopeful. I'll let you know. Ever seen a big, scary-ass guy with a gnarly scar on his left cheek? Real deep-like? Um, <clears throat> rings a bell? Probably ringing several. Doesn't exactly narrow it down for him, does it? Will you stop splitting hairs? You know this is the guy. Look at the shirt. I raised the light further still. I concede, although I would suggest replacing that shirt, my friend. You're prettier than that. Say what? Never you mind, Jamie growled. That bell better still be ringing. Oh, it is, I said, moving closer to the quivering humanoid. Ever-darkening sweat patches had formed under his arms. He knew of whom we spoke, but I still got the sense that he was hiding something. He was racking his brain, but I was doing it faster. What do you know of him? The man you walked into just before you lost consciousness. You mean that bounty hunter? Is that what they're calling him now? How the mighty have fallen. It's a noble profession, the man remarked. Jamie raised her eyebrow and grunted. I didn't ask for your opinion, Wheezy. I requested information. Fellow arrived in town a couple months back. He's been bringing in at least one bounty every couple days. Sometimes one a day if the weather ain't too harsh. Alive, I requested. Pays better, the man said, without missing a beat. Lest to forget. What did you say? Jamie said. She too moved closer. It's an old Mercer saying, I sighed. Like the song? You could say that. Carry on, Eli. How the hell did you know? Really? I cut off your air supply with a snap of my fingers. We both collectively and separately held you up with our minds. Something nobody ever saw Jesus do. Not without help, anyway. Jamie cut in. Now that's just cold. And you're really asking me how I know your name. Who the hell are you people? You're right, Jamie said. People do ask that question a lot. Right? What do we do with him? He doesn't know anything we don't know already. I'm not so sure. I moved closer, but he won't give it up easily. What, what do you mean? Jamie asked as my cane began to bubble with red energy, replacing the torchlight, bathing the entire room in a blood-red glow. What the hell are you doing? I'm taking a closer look. Some things just can't be described. The fear on Eli's face was almost palpable, pulsating like a beacon in the crimson dawn. What the hell is that thing? Oh god. Oh god, what the hell is it? My smile widened further still. Mercy. Arthur trotted at a steady pace down the track that gave way to the Valkyrie Springs plantation. Strange how Arthur's temperature seemed to drop the further south he seemed to go. Swampland, stuffy and spiked with almost healthy grass, partially bleached from long-term sun exposure. There was a dirt track leading through the trees up to an outhouse, either side of the well-worn tracked slosh swamp water that soaked the track where it met the edge. Dead fish rotted beneath the film time had laid upon it. 
Rigor mortis tends to spread if you're not careful. It was worse for Arthur thanks to Lupine's inherently heightened senses. More than rather distracting, but he sucked it up, or more accurately, he tried not to. He dismounted his horse where the blades of grass ceased their growth, leaving her to feed on what little plant life remained here. The plantation house was right in the middle of the field surrounding it, three stories high. Not uncommon, but that meant it could house quite a few residents. If there were two or three to a room, that made up a lot of enemies of unknown strength and firepower. Arthur's mount, of a curious grey Arabian stock by name of Loa, bristled at a long stone carp as it swam past her head. I wouldn't drink that. He chose to circle the outhouse rather than enter through the front door, as he could hear snoring. Sleepy gunfire can be the worst kind, not to mention he wanted to keep things as quiet as possible. The boarded-up windows made this task far easier. Around the back was an algae-ridden creek, and by the water a half-broken, run-down dock facing the plantation house across the... water? A rowboat constructed from pine wood rotted in the forgotten ink. Arthur could plainly see that the pathway he had entered through continued round the back of the outhouse, to the left of the water, and was perfectly usable. He inspected the boat a little closer. Bloodstains, both human and animal. The penny dropped. Those goddamn bastards, Arthur growled. There wasn't any doubt in his mind that it had been the former slaves who had lived and slept in this outhouse. This back house, it seemed. Now Arthur looked, he could see he must have entered from the rear of the property. If they're white, put them in the spotlight. If they're black, put them in the back. Despite the surrounding dark, broken only by the moonlight and stars above, Arthur could see the past as clear as day. The owners of this here establishment, the sadistic shitbiscuits that ran this business, took part in this trade, had made the poor beings row across this murky water to start their jobs each morning. No doubt they had also kept animals of varying types for various reasons. Release a crocodile to make things interesting. Maybe place a few bets over breakfast. Why not? See who comes out on top. They'll be the ones who get to eat today. Not right away, though. No, sir. Big Daddy needs his morning brandy poured just right. Have a sip if you so desire, you nameless drone. But you sure as hell better be pouring that in a separate glass and make it half full. And that's Big Daddy being generous. Yes, sir, it is. Because you ain't even worth half of me. The bile-filled voices of the past cascaded through Arthur's conscious mind. He tried to block it out with no success. But there was another sound emanating from the present, and another smell that he immediately identified as gunpowder sourced from around the front of the outhouse. The sound was coming from the plantation house's bottom floor, further south. Remonstration? A definite altercation. Perhaps tonight's torture session had reached a breaking point. Behind him, Arthur heard movement from inside the outhouse. Someone was in there. The lupine decided to take to higher ground, given that there were enemies on both sides. The outhouse had a broken chimney jutting out from its wrecked stone roof. Arthur managed to hoist himself carefully on the precarious roof with minimal effort. Good thing, too. He just managed to remove his stalker hat, a wedding gift from his beloved, before the rear entrance window that looked out onto the north side, overgrown tobacco field that made up most of the plantation's back lot, exploded from inside out. This time there was a gunshot. Arthur ducked down further out of sight. Again, he let his lupine ears sprout out of his cranium, a kind of radar that was able to stretch physically and psychologically further than his eyes were able to when camouflaged from view. He saw through, he saw past the structure of the stone chimney. You better tell me where it is, 
or so help me God I will shoot you in the liver. The back door swung open with a violent shunt, and over the threshold stumbled a man, who Arthur guessed had been the source of the echoing shouts of terror that had pricked Arthur's ears up a mile back down the road. The prisoner was in a bad way. His rancher clothes were stained with blood and soot, as was almost every inch of skin that was exposed to view. Arthur needed to get closer, but he couldn't show himself, not yet. He needed more information. Closing his primary pair of eyes, he began to probe those in close proximity. Whoever had fired the gunshot hadn't yet revealed himself. The tortured rancher was shaking fiercely as he backed down the porch steps, further north towards the fields in front of the outhouse. It was clear that the bloody jolly rancher would be the easiest to form a silent psychic connection with. However, the man was in no state to defend himself physically, nor did he currently have the mental capacity to receive subconscious instruction. For now, the man would just have to act as a live, visual feed, which itself was sketchy, given the amount of times the poor humanoid had been punched in the face by several fists. The rancher coughed and wheezed in desperation. Arthur felt the tears of physical agony, panic and ultimate self-preservation course down the victim's ruined cheeks. How many more goddamn times have I gotta tell you? He never told me where he stashed what was his. Because it wasn't mine. There's only one of me. You got a whole goddamn garrison under your thumb. Just use your eyes. If it were that easy, we would have found it by now. More than a week we've been here. We've emptied the attics, we've ripped out half the goddamn floorboards, and nothing. Not a fucking thing. Maybe there weren't anything to find in the first place. I just worked here. I got paid at the bank. Why don't you go ask them? A low guttural laugh sounded as the gunman, who had finally decided to reveal himself along with five or six others, took in the words of his prey. Have you lost your goddamn mind? His smile faded as he drew closer now brandishing a second gun from his right-hand holster suspended from his waist. They'd see us coming a mile away. Arthur allowed himself a small smile when he heard that. I might be a lot more accurate than you think, you sack of shit. Still holding the guns, the gang leader's stance changed, as if channeling an as-yet-non-existent hypothetical entity. Oh, why, good morning to you, Mr. Teller, sir. You wouldn't happen to be stupid enough to hand over the original design plans to the recently repossessed plantation house in Valkyrie Springs over yonder. And while you're at it, would you be kind enough? Nay, the gang leader paused for dramatic effect, making the rancher flinch when the first syllable of the next word landed. Dense enough to write down the various combinations of the three different safes when we do find them, just to save us the trouble of having to use dynamite. Because, you know, that's sure as hell gonna invite a whole lot of unwanted attention. There was a laughter emanating from the wall of meat formed from the underlings of his vicious gang. They surrounded their leader and their victim, both protection and isolation trapped in the same circumference. The rancher again began to cough and splutter, falling to rest most of his weight on one knee. It wouldn't be long now. Since Arthur had formed the psychic link when the poor man backed into range moments earlier, he had just enough time to sift through the man's surface-level thought processes. The men knew what they were looking for. There was no doubt about that. But what was the rancher's apparent knowledge even based on? Concrete evidence or mere hearsay? His personality type mandated that he would talk if he had the words, but he didn't, because he had no clue. At this point, he would say anything. The mere idea of treasure was enough to get desperate idiots like these to tear the place apart and torture someone who Arthur now knew was innocent, which made his anger rise in earnest. Then Arthur thought again of the forced flash he had experienced before the gunshot had sounded. This place was a place of evil, and it was time to burn it all down. 
I believe in a thing called love. Just listen to the rhythm of my hearts. There's a chance we can make it now. We're gonna be killing till the sun goes down. I believe in a thing called love. You okay there, sir? The passerby was middle-aged and dressed in a semi-elegant suit. Those shirt sleeves were long enough to conceal paper-thin items. Maybe even playing card thin. Further down Mercer's main street was a casino. Blackjack, Texas Hold'em, and other such games designed to germinate friendly competition and deadly addiction among the populace. This man, however, had found a way to trip the system. You better believe it, my good man. I am at the peak of that feeling you get when you've just been pointed in the right direction on this bendy path we do so elegantly call life. As elegant, I might add, as that suit you have on. It's positively glowing. Good night on the tables, I see. You sure do notice a lot, friend, the man said, now looking uncharacteristically shifty. Indeedy, I do. Don't worry, though. Your secret's safe with me. Just then, rather than tapping my extensive nose to signify I was aware of his concealed tools, those of a grifter, I instead tapped my right fingers on the left sleeve of my coat, just on the point where my dark pale skin of my wrist was exposed. Shiny suit's eyes darkened. Saying nothing, he turned to move away. However, the man stopped, cocking his head slightly to one side, his jaw tightening. What? He grunted, once again making eye contact. My friend did have a question for you. I lit up with a click. Shiny Suit's face widened slightly. What friend? Evening. Jamie's voice from behind him. Jesus Christ! The man jumped, immediately going for his gun. With her mind, Jamie ceased Shiny Suit's art of motion, as if he was hogtied to the silent atmosphere. It wasn't like the main street was deserted, but to others passing by, it simply looked like three people having a conversation. He's not coming, but we're here now. I said, lessening my perception filter. Shiny Suit began to sweat. We know you're not a being out of time, but you're working with one. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, please. I cut off someone's head to get this information. The visual feat to the brain is never wrong, unless I make it wrong. You've been seen mooning around in the alleyway by the gunsmiths not long after a certain acquaintance of mine, friend, Jamie corrected, tightening her mystical grip on Shiny Suit's lower body causing him to shake. Shut up. Certain friend of mine arrived in town. You know who I'm talking about, yes? The man nodded. Jamie's grip tightened further still. You've been watching him. Why? The man began to gasp silently. Why? My boss man wanted to make sure we knew where he was. Make sure he was nice and distracted by good honest work. Why? Jamie asked, her face growing ever more contorted with quiet rage. There it was. The surface thought I was trying to locate. The secret. The clincher. Shiny Soup was about to confirm my hypothesis, but I cut him off before he could. So that Megan would be left unprotected. Her and... This time Jamie cut me off. The wee one. You... Fucking... Why does your boss want my friend's baby? I have no idea. He said it was special. One of a kind, something like that. It's above my station, please, just let me go. I don't think so, Jamie growled. Wait, I said. Jamie stopped, however reluctantly. The less suspicion we arouse among the ranks of 
whatever gaggle of shit sticks is after the Hennessy's, the better. I stared him down. The man toppled and fell to his knees. People began to look, but I flashed a surrounding smile and said, Don't worry, darlings, we're rehearsing a play. They all looked away in no particular order. Well, that seemed to work. I've got one of those faces. Now, I looked down at Shiny Suit one final time. Who's your boss? The man gestured in the direction of the sheriff's office at the end of the main street, with the few remaining body parts he still had control over. That's all I need. Good timing, too. What do you mean? Jamie asked. What the hell was that? Shiny Suit screeched. Among other things, I giggled, placing my hand on Shiny Suit's sweat-drenched cranium, while also taking Jamie's hand. My cue to wipe your short-term memory and send my friend on an errand. Jamie smiled then, as did I. Oh, <laughs> you're gonna love this. Five. The explosion was powerful enough to ignite and burn the entirety of the outhouse to a cinder, swept away by the current of the ash-filled tears that haunted this dreaded place were set free now. Those on their way down would first pay for their sins, and, as for the innocent, finally rise up and rest. Arthur Hennessy, however, had no time for rest. Some supplies Arthur had even kept before setting the place alight, not before making some intentional noise to entice the monstrous supposed gang leader and others around away from the innocent man and towards the outhouse. It worked, too. The explosion had been enough to take out a good 60% of the gang's forces. Reinforcements had been called after Arthur had decided to tear off one of the gang members' arms from inside the outhouse. The scream had been piercing enough to penetrate the hearts of the rest of the gang. Well, almost. As it turned out, it wasn't the rest of the gang Arthur even had to worry about. Rule number one, or maybe it's rule number 432, I forget, of the telepathic manual passed down through every lupine bloodline of known Akatanian history, expect the unexpected. Cliché, but you can't argue with it. Lupines did have the ability to shapeshift after all, and due to the nature of their work within and without the Citadel Guard, it was important that they also had the ability to blend in every possible way especially when hiding in alien surroundings. Arthur had to admit it to himself. This lupine scout had played his part well. Very well. There was a window of about six minutes between Arthur dismembering the members, as I've just decided to put it, and the rest of the gang making their way tentatively towards the outhouse at the end of the overgrown tobacco field. Enough time for Arthur to duck out of sight, and just enough time he had to measure it out. Luckily his eyes were up to the task thanks to the rest he had given them moments before for the gang members to actually get to the outhouse before it exploded. Luckily, his timing was perfect, and that was, he would later admit to himself, when Arthur became complacent, overconfident. He thought he was done. Maybe he would get to find whatever was hidden in here, bring it home to Megan, and they would be able to move on further east, or maybe south. But no. Upon dispatching all of the gang's forces that chose to stay behind and fight after the explosion, and there weren't many despite the group's surprising size and... If I was honest with myself, which wasn't often despite what you might think, their organization. Instead of coming all at once, they arrived in waves of differing numbers and strength, testing Arthur's resolve. That's when he should have started to become suspicious. But, like the good man he was, he focused on protecting the innocent, and if he could, punishing the guilty. The problem was, he was standing up for the wrong person. 
Not that there was any right person to stand up for in this plantation situation, especially not the rancher. Making his way over to the terrified man, post-ass kicking, he knelt down. You alive? He put his hand down on the man's shoulder, attempting to turn him over. Sir, can you hear me? We can always hear you, Arthur. No matter where you run. No matter where you hide. What the hell? Was all Arthur managed to say just before the concealed lupine blade entered the disgraced commander's torso, killing Arthur's motion, freezing him to the spot on his knees from the neck down. The rancher's face began to morph, along with the rest of him. All the human witnesses had died believing what they had all died believing. As far as Arthur could tell, it wasn't much between them, and so he therefore supposed that nothing much would be waiting for them. That alone was enough to get Arthur to smile, which, to be honest, was the main reason I got there so quickly, because dark smiles to me, are like beacons of light. End of part one. If you're a podcast clown like I am, you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all of the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.